Well, today is an important day on the calendar, isn't it? Today is a notable day. Today is a day that none of us should overlook, and I would say that particularly no Christian family should overlook. Today is a great day of celebration. Today is a great day of thanksgiving. Today, as all of you are aware, is what? Ascension Sunday, right. That's exactly right. Did you know it? Today is the Lord's day as every day is, and we are thankful for you mothers, unbelievably thankful for you mothers, so many faithful mothers here. But this Thursday actually marks 40 days following Easter, or Resurrection Sunday, and uh, that was the day that the Lord ascended back into heaven. And as I mentioned last week, the ascension is perhaps the least known, the most underappreciated, the most neglected event in all those events that mark the Lord's exaltation. The ascension of Christ is not a postscript to the resurrection. It doesn't pale in comparison to Christ coming out of the grave, but it is a distinct and a very deliberate event in Scripture and we began looking at it last week, Acts chapter 1. We're just going to read three verses today, beginning in verse 9. And after he, Jesus had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. You'll remember that Jesus, in addition to what is recorded here in Acts, Luke also records at the end of Luke that Jesus blessed his followers with his hands raised. And then following the ascension, his disciples worshipped him and then went to the temple where they were continually worshipping him. Last week we looked at the ascension itself and I, I was thinking last week as we wrapped up the message, you know, on, on Resurrection Day, there is a common greeting that has been historically pronounced throughout the ages, he has risen, in which the congregation replies, he has risen indeed, and I want to institute a new, a new practice for Christ's church. He has ascended, he has ascended indeed. This is a significant event. Last week we looked at the particulars of this event, and this week we want to consider the significance of it, why it matters. 
And I want to get to this because I've got a lot of reasons why it matters, and we're going to have to move. I want to give you 10 aspects of the Lord's ascension in hopes that this climactic event in Jesus' life will no longer be an afterthought for any of us. What is the significance of the ascension? Well, first, the ascension confirms the, the Lord's word. The ascension confirms the Lord's word. We can have confidence in Christ because it's yet another event that was prophesied in Scripture that Jesus, in fact, fulfills. Jesus told his friends and his enemies alike that he would be ascending back to heaven. To the Pharisees, he says this, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. I am glad I never heard those words spoken to me. To his disciples, Jesus said, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again, and I am going to the Father, John 16, 28. To Mary Magdalene, we saw on Resurrection Sunday, stop clinging to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go, but go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And the simple point is this, Jesus said he was going home. He went home. And we can trust him because of it. He walked his talk, he backed it up, and he made a promise, and an audacious promise at that, and he fulfilled it just as he said he would. And isn't this the way it always is with the scriptures? The Lord speaks, doesn't he, with specificity, with detail. He doesn't just throw out like some some cheesy, deceitful, pseudo-preacher on on TBN in in broad generalities, I sense that someone out there tonight has a bad back. Uh, No, duh, two-thirds of the congregation has a bad back. This is Jesus saying with specificity, I am here now, but I am leaving, and I am going back to the Father. And it always comes out in the words of Scripture in the minutest of detail. Born to a virgin means born of a virgin. Born in Bethlehem does not mean Jerusalem. It does not mean Ephesus. It does not mean the Middle East. It means Bethlehem. What Jesus says, Jesus does. Prophecy in Scripture is intricate. It is detailed. It is specific. And it is fulfilled in exactly the same terms. And so our Lord can be trusted for all he says. And therefore, brother and sister, Jesus can be trusted when he tells us that I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. You can trust him for that. And I will receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Those words should stir your heart. Number two. The ascension declares the Lord's victory over sin, death, and Satan. And I gave you this one last week, but it's so good, we're going to do it again. 
The ascension declares the Lord's victory over sin, death, and Satan. And because it declares his victory, it declares our victory in him. The ascension is the vindication of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as his resurrection was. It was the very proof that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that he could do what he claimed to do, and it marked the Father's acceptance of his sacrifice for our sins. Only the sinless, blameless, spotless, morally impeccable Christ has entered in, and we're with him. That's what this ascension says. We have been united with him. We are in him. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul says what? We have been seated, raised with him, and seated in heaven with him. If you are in Christ this morning, you are sitting here and you are sitting there. Huh? Right. I know. It's hard to understand. We are creatures who are, who are, who are physical and we're of flesh and we're visual and we just think, no, I can feel myself sitting here. Yes, and in him, your salvation is so secure in the risen and ascended Christ that you are there. Because those whom he foreknows, he predestines, and then he what? He calls, and then he justifies, and then what's the final end of all of that? He has glorified us. This is the only reason you can speak of the cross as good news. Because the grave could not hold him. He was a victor over it, and therefore we in him are overwhelming conquerors. His humiliation was the way, the pathway to his exaltation, and Christ has ascended back to the Father. And I read it to you last week, but I'll read it again. Hebrews 9.24, Christ did not enter the holy places made with hands, mere copies of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God, get this, for us. His entrance into heaven ensures your entrance into heaven. And his welcome is your welcome. His acceptance is your acceptance. And the acceptance of all who have hoped in him. Well, there's a third aspect of the ascension I want to point out. The ascension third initiates the Lord's high priestly session. Now if that word session is new to you, it has the idea of being seated. When school is in session, students attend and they sit at their desk. When Congress is in session, they gather and they sit to do the people's work, or so they say. Christ is seated on high as our high priest. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us that Jesus is the unique mediator between God and man. That it was his death and his resurrection that secured our reconciliation with God. And that mediatorial role is his high priestly role where he represents us before the Father. Now Hebrews is the go-to book if you want to know about the priesthood of Christ. It's one of them. 
I looked it up. I had not looked it up before. I just wondered, how often does this concept of Christ's priesthood show up in the book of Hebrews? It's in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, and 13. Every chapter but chapter 11. And in the language of Hebrews 4.15, Jesus is the high priest who's passed through the heavens. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And so he is able to, to come to our help. He represents us making atonement for our sin, offering himself as a perfect and sufficient sacrifice. So that in Hebrews 10.9, we read that we have been sanctified or made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But here's the thing you've got to understand. That wasn't the end of his high priestly work. Now he is in heaven, and we're told in Scripture that he is seated at the Father's right hand, interceding for us as our high priest. Now it is not insignificant that Jesus sat down. Servants stand in the presence of the one that they serve. Angels in Scripture are perpetually standing as they serve the Lord. They are ministering spirits. The Levitical priesthood stood perpetually as they served. Again, Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. Can you hear the monotony and the futility of those words? Why did he have to offer it time after time, the same sacrifices day after day? Why? Because those things could never take away sins. But he, the Lord Jesus, our high priest, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. You see, the priest's work was never finished. There wasn't even anywhere for them to sit. There was no rest for the weary in that priesthood. They always had another sacrifice to make. But Jesus, Hebrews 1, 3, having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 8.1, we have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Hebrews 12.2, he has sat down at the right hand of the throne on high. And that's just Hebrews. If we were to look through the, the text of Scripture, we'd find this repeated over and over. As you read your Bible, mark it. Jesus has sat down. He sat down. He's seated. You see, Christ sat because his atoning work was sufficient and it is finished. The work is done. You know this even at a human level, don't you, that after accomplishing some very wearying and great task that took you the full day to come in and plop down is something. Jesus didn't sit down because he was tired, by the way. But this is a way of speaking 
about the fact that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for us. He entered the holy place accomplishing our redemption. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. That is a reference to heaven itself, right into the heavenly sanctuary, right into the holy of holies. He entered the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You see, Jesus, like the priest, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, who would once a year offer sacrifices for himself and then for the nation and he would go into the holy of holies in order to make intercession for the people but this was a very weak ministry and it was weak because of the nature of the men who carried it out that priest entered with the blood of bulls and goats which could never atone for sin Jesus enters with his own blood, his perfect blood, that blood of a precious lamb, unspotted and blameless. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sin before they could represent the people. Jesus was pure and holy and without sin. They had to offer up sacrifices continually because an animal cannot atone for a man's sin. But Jesus, who is man, was sufficient the God-man who could offer the infinite once-for-all sacrifice. The priesthood was a temporary service because they would age out, they had term limits, and they would also eventually die. Christ, though, who lives forever, can intercede for us as an eternal priest, as the one who makes atonement and now intercedes before the throne of God on our behalf. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now listen, let's talk about this word intercession for just a second, because we hear that word and we tend to think Jesus is praying for me, and he is. But understand that this word has much more meaning than merely that Jesus prays for you. He is praying for you, and that is monumentally significant. But understand that this concept of intercession is that he he intercedes for you and continues to intercede for you on account of his shed blood. Our ongoing acceptance before God is finally grounded in the utter sufficiency of the cross. And the validity and the sufficiency of the cross was demonstrated in the resurrection and then the ascension. And now Christ ascended on high, intercedes with that blood on your behalf so that you can be washed and cleaned forever. It is finished as Jesus said, and our high priest is seated. He is a sufficient savior for sinners. That's the message. How important is the ascension of Christ? 
Number four, the ascension commences the Lord's coronation. The ascension commences the Lord's coronation and therefore our reigning with him. Not only does Christ's ascension into heaven fulfill the Lord's ministry as high priest, but it also serves as his coronation as king. Look over at Acts chapter 2 and verse 32. Here we find the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. We'll pick up in the middle of this sermon. He says, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, key words, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which, which, which you both see and hear. And then he quotes from Psalm 110. Note this in verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. If we were to take the time this morning to go to Psalm 110, you would read these words, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Listen to this. Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, have dominion in the midst of your enemies. Isn't that great? The coronation of Christ, the scepter of sovereignty, his dominion. You see, in the plan of God, the Lord Jesus Christ is destined to be king of the universe and all that is in it. And we saw that as priest, Jesus was seated as high king. I'm sorry, as priest. And as king, he is what? At the Father's right hand. These two concepts in scripture, you've heard it already this morning, are joined time and time and time and time again. The idea of being seated as a priest and at the right hand of the Father as king. And all of that has to do with a guy with a funny name, Melchizedek, and we'll get to him eventually, I promise, okay? Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 1 and verse 20. He says that Christ, Jesus Christ, the king, is now seated at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Hebrews 1-2, the Son is the one whom the Father has appointed as heir of all things and has now sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The right hand biblically signifies two things. First, it is the place of preeminence and honor. It is the place of preeminence and honor and majesty. Secondly, biblically, the right hand refers to the place of authority. It is the seat of power. You shouldn't think that Jesus somehow has a seatbelt on up there at the right hand of God and can't budge. That's not the picture. This concept of the right hand of God 
has the idea of his preeminence, his honor, his majesty, and his authority. Now, I don't know if you're one of those royals nuts or not, but we had a coronation just in the last week or two, didn't we? I won't ask for a show of hands as to who watched it. But if you had watched it, you would have seen Charles as he was coronated king. You would have seen them hand to him the scepter of sovereignty. Now, the Brits don't do anything willy-nilly. They took that scepter of sovereignty and they put it in Charles's right hand. Why? Because it speaks to his authority, his authority as king over the people. And that's the idea here. It's, it's authority and rule and power. And it really struck me when I watched not too many months ago, I did watch that, and when the queen was, was there in her memorial when they, uh, when she was in the, it was laying in state. It was, it was impressive to me that here these implements that had been given to her were now resting on top of her coffin. And the reporter said, uh, the narrator said, "You're now going to see so and so remove the scepter of sovereignty." Jesus Christ has a scepter that will never be removed. He will never lie in state. And nobody can remove the scepter of sovereignty from his right hand. He is forever the King of kings. He is forever the Lord of lords. And our, our Lord's present kingly reign is going to one day be fully realized on this earth, and this is why we pray as we sang this morning, your kingdom come. And we yearn, don't we? We know this, the longing of our hearts to see things restored, to see things made right, to see death put away once and for all, to know life apart from the molestation of sin. We yearn for that day when the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, when he will reign forever and ever. Number five, the ascension unveils the Lord's pre-incarnate glory, and therefore we worship. The ascension unveils the Lord's pre-incarnate glory. In the incarnation, when Christ came and took on flesh and bone. His glory was veiled. The infinite, eternal, almighty second person of the Godhead, the divine Son, took on the nature of frail flesh and mortal humanity, and he did all of that without diminishing in the least his divine nature. And so theologians are helpful when they tell us that Christ remaining what he was became what he was not. And of all that sort of 
limbo bar of humility listed for us in in Philippians 2. It just keeps dropping the bar and dropping the bar. And how, how low can Christ go? You see that it says that he came in appearance as a man. When people looked at the Lord of glory, all they saw was a man. And frankly, who wasn't all that impressive in appearance. We're used to, aren't we, putting on our best when we go out. We want people to see us for who we are. Think about it. The humility of Christ. All they saw was a man. He was found in appearance as a man and he humbled himself, the text says. Jesus becoming man was like turning the dimmer switch all the way down on his divine glory. And you remember, Peter got a glimpse of that thing, didn't he? Up, up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, man, this is good. I want to live right here in, in the light of this. You remember, John got a glimpse of that glory. And it left him in a state of paralysis as a dead man. Mike Riccardi writes this, quote, Rather than insisting on his own rights to continue in manifesting his divine power and authority, the eternal Son of God selflessly surrendered those rights by taking on human nature in order to accomplish salvation for sinners. End quote. He came from heaven, brothers and sisters, to accomplish our salvation, but now he returns back into heaven, and he's not just taken up. He is taken up to glory. He is taken up to be glorified in the language of Scripture, John 17, 5, glorified with the glory that was rightfully his. In humiliation, he comes from heaven, and now in exaltation, he is restored to the glory he had before the world was. And there is a sense in which Christ's glory was even magnified on the other side of the incarnation in his redemptive work because he left, left heaven as what? As spirit, but he returns now forever as the God-man, the lamb who is slain. Therefore, Philippians 2 tells us that God also what? Highly exalted him. Why did he highly exalt him? Because of his humility, because of serving us and the Father primarily as the suffering servant. And he bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those that are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, it is this glorious Christ whom we worship. It is this glorious Christ that we come to, 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 to serve and to offer our lives a living sacrifice. When you think of Jesus, how do you think of him? You see, this is the blasphemy. This is the blasphemy of the crucifix. 
to somehow affix in some emblem this idea of Jesus' body still nailed to a cross in in the shame of his suffering. No. This is the exalted Christ in radiant glory that you could not stand before today and will only be able to stand before in heaven because everything that's wrong about you will be made right at that point. The manger is empty. The cross is empty. The tomb is empty. Heaven is not. He is lifted up. And he is on high. The ascended Christ is more glorious than you or I can even imagine. And therefore, like the disciples, we're left in worship and we come to the temple daily, continually to exult in our ascended king. We've got to keep moving. Number six, the ascension anticipates the Lord's return. And so we wait expectantly for him. The ascension anticipates the Lord's return. I I love the visual of those disciples looking up as Jesus is getting smaller and smaller and further and further away, and that cloud is now enveloping him. And their hearts, perhaps, at some level, is is sinking and sorrowful to see him go, undoubtedly. But their, their eyes are fixed. And the church, beloved, has never lost that posture. Our eyes are up, are they not? They should be. Our eyes are in the heavens where our treasure is. We have those longing eyes of the soul that is hungry for the return of Christ. Even the angels, when they come to describe this thing, they say, why are you you looking up? Why, Why are you longing for Christ? Don't you understand? Look, he's coming back. You see, they knit those two things together. This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. The Lord's ascension is essential, but but fix this in your mind. It's also temporary. This present age is going to give way to the next. And Jesus is, in fact, coming back for his people. This is our blessed hope. This, beloved, is why Paul writes about the fact that there is a crown coming to those who, I love these words, love his appearing. Do you love the appearing of Christ? Are you longing for that? Is there an ache in your soul? This life has its pleasures and its joys, but listen, you're way underestimating heaven if you're thinking that this life is better than the next. Paul, who's been there, knows, and he told us already that what? To be with Christ is better? No, very much better, he says. The Lordship, of Christ is currently concealed from the world, but he is going to make it visible soon enough. And this is why the church is 
continually crying, even to the end of the book of Revelation, what? Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. We're waiting for him to come and to finish and to wrap up and to to restore all things, to renew all things. And beloved, frankly, listen, a vision towards heaven is something that will radically change your life. If you understand where we are going, if you understand that it is better, if you long to see what is wrong in this world made right, it will help you live a life that's profitable. It will teach you to live, as the Apostle Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 7, as those who use the world but do not make full use of it. It will teach you, as John writes, In 1 John 2, not to love the world or the things in the world. Why? Because that's not of the Father, and this world and its lusts are passing away. It's cotton candy in your mouth. Why pursue it? It's not good for you, and it doesn't last. Come and eat what is good without cost. We belong to Jesus, and Jesus is in heaven, and many of you are old enough to have many people that you know and you love who are in heaven, and that ought to excite your heart with the thought of being reunited with them. All that is ours is in heaven, and heaven is our home. We're going to come back to this in a moment, but I think we have time. Flip to the right to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Paul, by the Spirit, writes these things. Here's that therefore in his letter. Here's the turning point. After all that he's given us theologically, now he's going to apply these things. And he says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, and that if is a sense, if you are in Christ, you've been raised up already. He says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Jesus said what? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, right. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated, note this, at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above. And as if to give you a double whammy, he says, and not on the things that are on the earth. For you died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested then you also will be manifested with him in glory. And then he goes on to mark a bunch of sins that we ought to put off and a bunch of Christ-like godliness that we ought to be characterized by. You see, a mindset on Christ's ascension and his eventual return gives you purpose in the world, it will teach you to live with urgency, it will teach you to live with intentionality, it will remind you constantly that the time is short and the work is great and the day is is short and darkness is coming and we must work while it is day, it will keep you moving and serving 
the Lord with a sense of fear, knowing that he is coming. Number seven, the ascension manifests the Lord's eternal incarnation. The ascension manifests the Lord's eternal incarnation. And you say, why is that important? Well, because that way we understand that our flesh may dwell with God eternally as well. You see, the Lord's exaltation in the flesh anticipates our own. Jesus went to some length, didn't he? I mean, you you read that in the Gospels. He went to some length after the resurrection to show his followers that he was not a ghost. He kept saying, look, I, I have a body. I'm flesh and bone. Give me some of that fish. I'll eat it right in front of you. Thomas, come, touch, see. You see, his incarnation was not something temporary. His incarnation is a physical reality, and it is not one that he left behind when he ascended to the Father. And there are some Christians or professing believers who who are tempted at least to think that. They play loose and fast with this. It's almost as if they've got this sort of Uh, uh, platonic hangover where evil is bad and spirit is good. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. Jesus took to himself human flesh and he took that flesh, that righteous flesh, all the way into heaven. And so when we see him there, we will worship him. He will, he will bear the marks of his death. Revelation says that we'll see him as a lamb who was slain. What was the goal of the incarnation? Jesus became a man, why? So that he might represent men, right? For who we are. That he might come as the last Adam that he might live the life that Adam could not live, that you and I did not and could not live. He comes and lives it, and he lives it sinlessly, and he lives it sinlessly in our flesh. Again, tempted in all things as we are, he suffered and died in our flesh, and he rose from the grave, the first fruits from the dead. It was his flesh that came up and out of that grave. And so the point is this, that he ascended into heaven in the flesh so that we might have assurance that redeemed humanity can in fact dwell in heaven. How do you know that your humanness can be with the divine God? The answer is simple. There's a man sitting at the right hand of God. There's already a man. You say, but he's God. And I say, yes, but he's man. He is the God-man. We sing it, don't we? Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands inside. Behold, look, see it. Rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. I love this. He is and ever will be bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. He is our hope and our assurance that we too will enter, in fact, within the veil. 
Schreiner writes this, quote, Jesus descends in the flesh and rises in the flesh to redeem flesh. Temporal, material, and physical dimensions are not therefore repudiated in the ascension. They're affirmed. Christ descended to ascend. In the one, he comes in the flesh to us. In the other, he brings us in the flesh to God. Christ descends in order to bring God to humanity, and he ascends to bring humanity to God. Beloved, we will ever dwell there, all who have faith in Christ. Your body will be resurrected and you will dwell in this body. Job knows that his Redeemer lives. Job knows that in his flesh he will see that Redeemer. It is no different for you and for me. This is not some ethereal concept. Number eight, the ascension amplifies and empowers the Lord's work by the Holy Spirit. The ascension amplifies, turns it up, increases it, and empowers it, the Lord's work, by the Holy Spirit. Luke is clear, as are the other writers of Scripture. We're going to see this later on in Peter's sermon, that Christ's ascension to glory, his exaltation, had to happen. It was a divine necessity before the Spirit would come. And last week, as I mentioned, the Old Testament is full of references to the outpouring of God's Spirit. And Jesus himself spoke of the giving of the Spirit very definitely and repeatedly in chapters 14 through 17 or 16 of John. In fact, he told his disciples very bluntly and very plainly what? If I do not go away, the helper will not come. Jesus had to ascend and return to glory before the Spirit would be poured out on his people. John 7, 39, the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You can see it over in Acts. We read it earlier. If you just flip over a page to Acts chapter 2 and verse 33, It says, therefore, having been exalted, speaking of Christ, to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. The Spirit goes from the Father to the Son and then poured out upon the church. And all of that was contingent upon the ascension of Christ. How strategic is the gift of the Holy Spirit for the mission of the church? Think of it. Jesus ascends, sends his spirit into everyone who hopes in him for salvation. And you have this massive, massive, profound expansion of the work of Christ all over the world. Through the Holy Spirit, Christ is not removed from us, but is what? Within us, and now millions and millions.
thousands of spirit-indwelt believers are carrying on the work of Christ, representing Christ on every continent, in every country, all over this world. He is the head and we are the body and we are the representatives of Christ in this world. We are his voice. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are his very body. And Jesus said to his disciples, look, greater works than these will you do. And you're tempted to think greater works than you did? Well, no, not, not by, by way of kind, but greater in breadth and reach. Beloved, think of it. There are so many things I've said this morning. I just feel completely unable to articulate. It's amazing to me that by the Spirit, we are mediating the power and the presence of the King Jesus and his kingdom in this dark world. Our home is in heaven, but our work is in this world. Garrett Dawson writes these words, quote, Jesus is not finished with us or this world, so we trust that we sojourn here through these difficult years for a reason. We have been sent as the body of Christ to this world on the very mission of Jesus to proclaim his gospel and to enact his love. Are you living with that purpose? Do you realize you're a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that you do, in your house, in your home, in your marriage, as you parent, in the workplace, in the grocery store, on the soccer field, in your classroom, everywhere, everywhere, and at all times, we are called to be the very representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by his spirit, he is producing in us fruit and good work that he might put himself on display. Now, that is a joy, and that also comes at a cost, and we will talk about that more at length. Number nine. The ascension precipitates the Lord's gifts to his church. The ascension precipitates the Lord's gifts to his church. When he rose on high, he gave gifts. And so we're blessed. When Jesus ascended, he poured forth the Spirit, and the Spirit brings what? We all have been given what? Spiritual gifts, right? So that we can edify one another. Every believer is gifted with the indwelling spirit for the work and service of the ministry. But that's only because Christ ascended and poured out his spirit. But then also, secondly, Ephesians 4.8 gets even more specific. It tells us that when Jesus ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In other words, when Jesus accomplished his great salvation, he ascended to glory, leading forth or having delivered captives, sinners, from sin and from Satan. And then the text tells us that he gave a number of those redeemed sinners to the church as gifts to equip and strengthen his church. Listen to verses 11 and 12. This is Ephesians 4. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. 
just the fact that we have men around us. Men have been given to the church throughout her history that we might learn the truth and be built up in the faith. And we should give thanks to God for that. I've got dozens of men who live in my office, saints of old, whom God gave to the church and have written commentary after commentary after commentary. And I draw near to those men because I want to be instructed, and I thank God for them. Some of you listen to, to, to various podcasts and sermons. Thank the Lord for those men. They're gifts to the church. Thank the Lord for your elders. They're gifts to you from his hand specifically. And we do try to be a blessing so that you can give thanks with a whole heart. <laughs> Finally, number 10. The ascension marks the Lord's home going. The ascension marks the Lord's home going. Can you imagine what that home going was like? I don't know if you've ever been homesick, but homesickness is real and it's awful. I hated camp. I mean, I hated it. I'm sure the camp was great. I just didn't like being away from my mom and dad. I didn't like being away from my own bed and my friends and the things that were familiar to me. Think of it, Christ descends and he comes to this planet. Where every day, all day, he is engaged with what? Tainted motivations, sinful attitudes, sinful acts, broken people, disease and death, and tragedy after tragedy. And in the midst of all of it, he serves and he serves and he serves some more to the point of utter weariness. How exhausting it must have been to live on this fallen place and in that human body which knew what it was to be tired and to be hungry and all of those things that he had never known. Never was there a reunion like this. Home to the Father. And whatever you felt, he had to feel a million times more. And we can understand why the disciples would not have wanted to see Jesus go. We understand why they wanted to cling to him, why Mary wanted to hang on to him. And yet we should rejoice in the homegoing of Christ. Are you glad for him? Listen to Jesus to his disciples. John 14, 28. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. Listen. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. We should rejoice at the home going of Christ. Heaven is where he belongs. And heaven is where he wants you to be with him. Don't you love it when your kids want you 
to be with them? Don't you delight to be invited and included and a a part of things on this planet? You feel, man, man, that feels good. Think of it. The exalted king of heaven wants you. You you messy mass of, of motivations and sinful attitudes and actions. You, you he has purchased with his own blood. He came all this way to take you and me to heaven. He came not only to draw us there, but to draw us as what? Sons and daughters in the Son. He came to make us the household of God. He came not just to open his door and allow us to spend the night. He came to say, won't you spend eternity with me? (sighs) Unbelievable. And again, the thought that some want to think of heaven as some sort of spiritual reality, some sort of ethereal state of being. Listen, Jesus went home, and he went to a place. If you've read Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, he makes a point of this. You were saved for a person, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and you were saved for a place, and that is heaven. That was all part of the plan. Jesus came to rescue us and adopt us and to draw us in eternal bonds of love and fellowship that we might dwell together in heaven. And we are now the household of God and we are now adopted in him. And he has gone according to his own promise and he is a God who cannot lie. He has gone to prepare a place for us. Don't you tell me heaven's ethereal. I don't want to live in some ethereal state. Jesus said it. In my Father's house, what? Are many dwelling places. I'm going there to prepare for you. Do you understand that in his home going, after the the initial celebration was over, Jesus got back to work preparing for your homecoming. I hope this sermon rings in your ears when you get there and you're going to go, Dave, didn't even, he didn't even get close. Uh, he didn't even get close. That guy was weak as a preacher. He couldn't tell me the half of it because I'm telling you, I can't tell you the half of it. It'll be that good. Beloved, if it were not so, he would have told us. And his bodily ascension into heaven foreshadows our own ascension into heaven. And that will be a homecoming for you like you have never known, like you cannot imagine. You were created and redeemed for that place, not here. Heaven is not your, uh, earth is not your home. It feels familiar, I get it. 
but even the four walls of your house with its hearth and its Christmas music and its tree and, and, and just your family gathered around, I tell you again, I can't paint the half of it, that is not home. You will get to heaven and you will breathe your last breath here, you will breathe your first breath there, and you will feel more at home there than you've ever known on planet Earth. You don't believe me, do you? I know, it's tough. You don't believe me, but you will find it to be true. How much hangs on the ascension of Christ? And I tell you, dear friends, it will not be long, for he who promised is faithful, and he will do it. I do not know Brian Tabb, but he is the academic dean at Bethlehem College and Seminary, and he wrote on a blog article, Four Implications of Jesus' Ascension, and I'm going to give them to you in closing. Number one, remember that Jesus is presently reigning as king and remains active and engaged in our world and in our lives. You have to have eyes of faith to see it. But he is risen and ascended and reigning even now. Number two, therefore, live boldly, confidently, and strategically as servants of the exalted King of heaven. Know that your labors in the Lord Jesus are not in vain. Number three, sufferers, sufferers, and there is no one in this room who is not a sufferer. Some of you may be suffering now. But beloved, one of the great things that Christ has called us to do as the church is to bear one another's burdens. And we all have a lot of them. And we should be telling them to one another and holding one another up in prayer. He says, sufferers, take heart that Jesus is not indifferent to your struggle. He has endured great suffering and thus is the most merciful and sympathetic counselor and mediator. Did anyone suffer more than Christ? Then he knows your suffering. Tab continues, take your cares to your ascended Lord who hears your prayers and can respond with all of heaven's authority. And finally, he says, number four, hope in the glorious future. The ascended Lord will return as judge and king. He will abolish injustice. He will end suffering. He will destroy death. And he will set up his kingdom of truth, righteousness, and love. And best of all, we will be with our king forever. We have said that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This morning we have considered the implications of your great ascension on high and we acknowledge, Lord, that once again we are utterly dependent upon you, thankful for your grace, thankful for your power, thankful that the grave did not hold you, thankful that you rose from the dead, thankful that you ascended on high, thankful that you have entered into the very holy of holies on our behalf to intercede for us with your blood as our great high priest. Oh, Lord, we have a great future ahead. We have a home that's with you. We're humbled, oh, Lord, and so grateful that you want to be with us 
for us to be with you where you are, to behold your glory and to worship you forevermore. And that is our heart's longing and desire. Lord, I pray today as we have taken much in that you will enable us to chew on these things, that you would fortify our souls and, Lord, lift our hearts to rejoice in gladness and praise for you are worthy. Amen.